you just won't believe unless you see them for yourself. Watch them unfold. This is one of those stories that folds and unfolds. See what I mean? Next on Independent Lens. That's Maggie Gyllenhaal there, introducing a 2008 documentary called Between the Folds about origami. It was made by Vanessa Gould. She spoke to people all over the world who are looking at the relationship between art and science and maths through folding paper. Origami, it comes from two Japanese words meaning folding and paper. Have a look at that documentary on YouTube. Uh, The full one is up there if you Google documental. It's brilliant and it makes you think about folding as something fundamental, something magical. This episode of The Function Room is just here to give you the slightest glimpse into that magical world because I've only just realised how amazing it is. If you think folding is just something you do endlessly with clothes before you put them in the wardrobe, possibly while listening to a podcast, then have a listen to this episode of The Function Room. Will we subscribe to her, Ruby? Okay. We'll have to do it now, but... Okay, can we do one more? Do one more? Okay, now... Maybe we take that out or get another piece? Get another piece and I'll try and make it a bit more square. That's me and Ruby learning a bit of origami off a YouTube video. We made two birds and two planes and I didn't check my phone once while doing it. You'll hear more snippets about how we got on throughout the episode. I have heavily curated these snippets uh, to make me look like a wonderful father. Uh, I've taken out the bits where I was impatient with her folding technique at the age of five, really. She should know. And also taken out any bits where it was clear that I actually was the one who made the mistakes. Even with the small things we made, though, we still got the feeling we were playing with something much bigger. Just taking a flat sheet of paper and folding Folding is seen as like a negative word, you know, a defeat to yield. Uh, But it's not negative to this fella. Folding is very much part of our world. It's not just little birdies and little froggies or something. It's a lot of very deep ideas that seem to meet here. Somebody once said that anything that moves folds in some way. You're not adding anything to something else. You're not subtracting you're transforming. That's the artist Paul Jackson, who has taught folding to students in many disciplines of design and engineering in over 80 universities around the world. He was speaking in a talk at Allo University in Finland. In this podcast, I barely make a crease in the subject, but it's just a taster to let you know that folding paper, like every fecking thing in maths, has got something to do with some of the fundamental questions. Small ones, tiny, 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 nano stuff, and the big ones, you know, obviously the universe. And just, if it gets you Googling other things, then I'd be happy with that. And I've got a guest. She is Dr. Rachel Quinlan, head of the School of Mathematics, Statistics and Applied Maths at NUIG, National University of Ireland, Galway. In her day job, according to the NUIG website, her current research interests are generally in the area of algebra, linear algebra, its interactions with group theory, combinatorics and field theory. Her research background is in group theory, particularly the ordinary and projective representation theory of finite groups. Of course, she also teaches students calculus, uh, where she says things like this. 
So suppose, we, suppose f of x is, is a continuous function that has this property that as, you, as x turns towards infinity, the limit of f of x is zero. But it was her tiles that grabbed my attention. If you see her on Twitter, at RKQuinlan, you'll see her pinned tweet is a series of beautiful pictures. She makes origami tessellations in her spare time. So I wanted to talk to her about how maths and origami are linked. As usual, throughout the podcast, I'll be jumping in uh, to explain small snippets that I really should have asked at the time, but I wasn't uh, clever enough to or didn't know what question to ask. Uh, And in the words of anti-vaxxers, there'll be some bits where I'll just say, look, I can't explain this fully. You might need to do your own research. Also, there's a bit in the middle where we talk about some of the tessellations that Rachel has made through folding. And it's a really visual bit. You'll you'll need to look her up on Twitter, look at her pinned tweet at RK Quinlan uh, just to see what we're talking about. Or maybe not, just maybe it's sometimes nice not to know and just bask in picturing it yourself and then maybe look afterwards to see is it what you thought it was. Also, uh, look, I made a bit of a hames of the sound on some bits. So at times when I'm a bit loud, it sounds a bit, a bit blurry and no excuses. I'll fix it the next time. I just It's just trying to get the levels right on the uh, Zencaster thing when I'm trying to record. Uh, so for people who like nice sound, I'm sorry, I'd be the same. I'm a bad person. Uh, it's as bad as dry mouth or you know, opening a bottle and drinking uh, during a TED Talk. Anyway, here's Dr. Rachel Quinlan uh, talking about origami. Origami is the art and craft of folding paper. It's most famously associated with with the Japanese tradition. And certainly it emerged in Japan as an art and craft form in the 17th century, if not earlier. I suppose lots of people are familiar with origami models of boats and of animals and of cranes and things like that. And I suppose what I do is basically create mathematical patterns that, are, that don't necessarily res- you know, represent physical objects otherwise in a, with, with paper. As I do this podcast, the thing that comes up over and over is that maths is patterns. And it's, it's, hard, it's still hard to get my head around because... I, I still think there has to be numbers and equations. So when you talk about mathematical patterns, can you tell me a little bit about why patterns are maths? Sure. So I suppose, I mean, this is something that I was puzzled about myself growing up as a child studying in mathematics, and, you know, even in primary school, where you had this aspect of mathematics that was about shapes and about squares and triangles and polygons and, you know, and then when we went into secondary school, that became geometry and we had theorems about geometry. And meanwhile, you had all this other stuff that was about doing calculations with numbers. And, you know, for a long time, I think I didn't really understand what the connection was between these two different things, although I enjoyed both of them. Um, so I suppose, you know, people have described mathematics as being literally the study of formal patterns. And it's, it's difficult to give a definition to precisely what it is. But I guess mathematics is about how objects behave under sort of formal rules. So it might be that your objects are numbers and that the formal rules are the rules about addition and multiplication and whatever calculations you can do with them, or that your objects are functions and your rules come from the world of of, of calculus, for example. Or it might be that your objects are shapes and you're interested in what kind of properties they have and how they fit together. So maybe your objects are triangles and you have knowledge about lengths of sides and about angles. And maybe you want to know something like if you have a triangle that has a particular angle in it and a particular, let's say, a side of a particular length, you know, does that determine exactly what triangle it is or are there more than, is there more than one possibility? What information about a certain physical object maybe kind of gives, you know, is, is sufficient for you to, to know exactly what it looks like or what, all this, or what all of its kind of physical characteristics are. So, yeah, so I think you're, you're right. I mean, the idea of, you know, what, what the objects of mathematics are is really much wider than, than, sometimes we, we, than sometimes we have a chance to, to realise by, you know, through the kind of most familiar activities, I guess. You're a mathematics lecturer. You, your job is you teach students and then you research areas of maths. 
But at some point uh, in your career, uh, you started folding paper. Can you remember the moment where were you sitting in your office? There's a sheet of paper hanging out of a photocopier or a printer. And you thought, oh, I wonder what happens if I fold and don't stop? Is it was it epiphany? It kind of was an epiphany, but not quite like that. It wasn't in my office. It was so what happened basically was I, I've always had an interest, I suppose, in what you might call the connection between mathematics and art or in mathematical art. So, for example, I guess the most famous artist who produced works connected to mathematics, maybe, is, is, is Escher. And lots of people are familiar with Escher's work and with his woodcuts. And his... To jump in here, M.C. Escher, he's a Dutch was a Dutch graphic artist uh, who had no mathematical training, but was able to make these amazing, mind-melting, make-you-see-the-world-a-different-way-ing drawings which messed with perspective. He created tessellations. He conjured 3D out of 2D, so he's the guy who draws the hands drawing each other. His work even predicted certain types of maths. And all of this, not bad for a fellow who wasn't properly recognised in the arts business, in the art business, until later in life, because the art world were very snotty about his work. They thought it wasn't lyrical enough, that it was too rigid and too mathsy, I suppose. The tools, what would they know? And so, yeah, so Escher was interested in these, I suppose, visual sort of sleight of hand, you might call it. But also he produced an extraordinary amount of art about where he had sort of repeating patterns, often with kind of imaginative decorative features like animals or something. You know, he's got famous pictures with birds and fish that kind of just sort of match up together and sort of fill up the entire page with this sort of repeating pattern. Uh, not only in Euclidean geometry, which is the familiar geometry that we all sort of live and work in, but also, for example, in hyperbolic geometry, where, where, where different things happen, the distance behaves. Euclid. Uh, Euclid was an Alexandrian Greek who wrote down very important rules thousands of years ago about lines, angles, circles and the plane, like the flat, 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 flat. Uh, Euclidean geometry works uh, pretty well for lots of things as long as there's nothing huge is bending the flatness of everything. So a triangle has 180 degrees laid down flat. That works fine. But it doesn't have 180 degrees on the surface of a sphere. So if you drew straight lines on the surface of a sphere, or at least what you thought were straight, those angles would add up because they'd be kind of bulgy. They would add up to more than 180 degrees. And it also doesn't work in general relativity because gravity bends the straightness of things. So it it bends the straightest thing we know, which is light. And space is a bit bendy and... People talk about the curvature of space. And so people say it's hyperbolic, like a saddle. Uh, And in a saddle type surface, triangles have less than 180 degrees. That most definitely is a story for another day. In hyperbolic geometry, where where, where different things happen, the distance behaves differently. So I had an interest in the work of Escher, and I was interested in the general theory about how we can fill up space with tiles, essentially. So, you know, if you, you can tile your bathroom floor, obviously, with squares or with hexagons or with triangles, but not with identical regular pentagons, for instance. So there are, you know, our nature comes to us sort of equipped with certain structures about how space can be covered in, in, in repetitive ways. So I was always interested in that. And uh, so anyway, what happened was with the origami was um, I got a gift of a book called Origami Tessellations by Eric Gerde, a gift from my husband, Neil Madden. And uh, you know, which had examples of these origami tessellations in it and some advice about how to get started and how to, um, you know, how, what, what the basic techniques are. So a tessellation is, a, I suppose, a particular type of symmetric pattern where the, which, which consists of, of, a, of, a, of a repeating part. So exactly like a tiling. I mean, if you imagine an ordinary tiling of a wall or a floor, that's a tessellation where you have a basic unit, be it a square or a hexagon or whatever. And by just putting down copies of that basic unit, you can cover the flat plane in such a way that every, you know, the, t- the tiles exactly sort of fit together with no gaps and with no overlaps. So that, that, that's what's meant by a tessellation. Is is one of the fascinating things about that that, like, a bathroom has walls, 
So, so the a floor is the most natural thing in the world because it's flat, goes on forever. Sure. And sure. but in our bathroom, definitely in our bathroom, walls happen quite soon. So you're imposing this artificial boundary on your lovely floor. And from a mathematician's point of view, I guess you love stuff that goes on forever. But then you come up against the the hard wall of a wall in this case. So so the, the, the boundary between ideal and a real bathroom. <laughs> I, I seem to be obsessed with the bathroom. I think we just spent so much time in our own bathrooms these days. Is that, that's, that's where it gets interesting. No, that's right. And of course, if, you know, if you're a mathematician, you kind of live in this idealized world where your sheet of paper has no edges and goes on forever. And you're kind of imagining that this is, you know, that you literally can cover an area that's infinite in extent with your tiles or whatever. But I suppose in practical reality, we just, you know, you, you can sort of produce it a physical example that, show, that does enough to uh, to show us that, you know, the, the extent of this pattern is not really limited by the edge of the paper or by the walls of the bathroom or whatever it might be. And of course, people have used tilings to extraordinary effect in the decorative arts throughout the ages. You know, you know, obviously we see it in the, in the Alhambra and in the, you know, in the, in, in the artwork, in the architecture of that area. And also in, even in, in ancient Roman mosaics, people have been using tiles decoratively for a, for a very long time, sometimes incorporating kind of, I suppose, what I would see as mathematical elements. Yeah. Not always, you know, sometimes using pictures or other decorative features. And I suppose Escher combined the two, you know, the, the sort of mathematical framework of, his, of the tiles, along with his decorative elements, such as fishes or birds or, you know, animals, uh, whatever they might have been. So the, the, my, the book of geometric origami tessellations, I'm afraid it sat, sat on the shelf for a while at home. Yeah. Until uh, one Christmas, I think I took it out and took out a piece of paper and started to try out a few of the technical elements, I suppose, that you can learn. And yeah. then once you've learned them, you can put them together to create these patterns. Pa- paper is an extraordinary material. I mean, this didn't really sort of occur to me until I started doing this. But the physical and mechanical properties of paper are really remarkable. First yeah. of all, of course, we use it for writing. So it has this ability to absorb ink in a reliable way and in a kind of clean way that you can put this messy ink substance into paper and it's, it's safe to do so and it's, it's still legible, you know, years later. So that's a remarkable thing. Yeah, it's, it's flat. Flat, enough to, flat enough to write on, but I presume at the microscopic level, ridgy enough so that the ink stays put. Yeah, exactly. And also it has, it has these extraordinary sort of mechanical properties as well that, you know, you can fold it and you can create a crease and then you can unfold it and return it to its original flat state, but it still has memory yeah. of this crease, you know. And you can yeah. even have, well, it depends, depends a bit on the paper, but you can you can even have the crease kind of preferring to fold either one way or the other way as a kind of valley fold or as a mountain fold. So yeah, yeah. so it, it's, it's it's extraordinary sort of durable and manipulable. Yeah, you think about other, you know. Of course, obviously, it has some weaknesses as well. It's not it's not super strong, but yeah. it. Uh, but you know, when you compare it to other materials, even like fabrics that we use in you know in clothing or you know metals that are used in construction or whatever it has really kind of special properties uh, yeah. which make it very i suppose suitable as a for for, for this particular type of art you know that it, and we we, we and disparage it I, I guess we disparage it well, because because the way we destroy it by cutting or wetting it the fact that paper can be cut is like its least useful <laughs> thing it's 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 if we if we just fold it that's where it becomes interesting no you're right and you know you look at the things that are made from paper and i suppose it's such a familiar material and it's you know it's, it's inexpensive and it's uh, very useful it's you know we use it at every stage of our lives as a plaything and as a very uh sort of serious tool as well of everything that we do but it's yeah. it's really an extraordinary material and so i think i kind of appreciate that more after doing yeah a little bit of origami <laughs> Yeah. So you're there with your hands and your papers. There's hands, no tool in between. And you just, you start following the steps. And does it start setting things off? Just does your your brain, which is uh, obviously has so much maths experience, does it start doing different things as you create these patterns? It kind of does. So initially I followed the instructions in, in Gerda's book and made a few of the patterns that were there. And I kind of, you know, I sort of got more into it as I, as I began to understand it a little bit better after doing a few of those. And then I started to realize that with, you know, with, with the basic steps that are there, so essentially with, with, for, 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 for these sort of things that I do, these kind of tilings, which this would be quite different from folding sort of animal models or something like that, which is also fascinating and, you know, and an incredible uh, sort of art form. Uh, but most of my designs would start with a, basically with a folded grid, which would either be a square grid, so just just creases 
you know, in a square grid, or else it would be a hexagonal or triangular grid where the, the creases form equilateral triangles that sort of mesh into the usual equilateral triangle pattern. So these are already two, you could regard them already as two tilings, you know, the ordinary square tiling or the ordinary triangular tiling where the whole plane is covered with equilateral triangles. So the idea there is you still have a flat piece of paper, but it's, it's, it's now got all these creases. And of course, yeah. although the paper is flat, it has, it has memory from these creases. It wants to fold along these crease lines. So then, so, you know, a first step might be basically if, you're, if, you're, if your paper is folded in a square grid, we'll say, to just make a pleat. So that means just gathering up a sort of band between two, two crease lines and folding them on top of each other. So then you have a thickness of two or three sheets of paper along one band. And otherwise, it's, it's, it's just one thickness. And if you hold that up to the light, already you can see that the light shining through it through a window has an effect, a bit like stained glass, I think, that, you know, you get sort of, a, a, you, you, you get a lot more light coming through the area where there's only one layer, of, one thickness of paper, and it's sort of darker band where there are multiple thicknesses of paper. And then we, you can make these pleats, you can make them intersect each other. And in the places where they intersect each other, where the pleats intersect, then basically the paper kind of wants to stand up because it's got maybe four pleats, you know, kind of coming yeah. together in a kind of cross. And so it wants, to, it wants to stand up above kind of the base and what you can do there then is you can sort of twist it down and create a square twist or a triangular twist where you have this square or equilateral triangle kind of sitting above the base uh, and maybe also angled against, you know, offset, at an offset angle compared to the underlying grid. And so you can create these twists. And of course, you can have them overlapping each other. You can have them of different sizes. You can have them uh, intersecting each other in different ways around the, and, and, and um, you know, around, around the region. And you can sort of create maybe a basic region which then can be repeated at intervals yeah. around the around the the, the 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 rest of the sheet, and you, you, so ultimately you get this kind of well tiling essentially, <laughs> you know, where, where there's, a, where there's a, a a fundamental region that contains maybe all the the elements, and by repeating that at intervals, you, you fill up the whole space. So that's kind of the idea. Yeah, and, and on like, your on, just on your Twitter feed, you have yeah. your your pinned tweet is nine examples. Right, here's the visual bit. Uh, it might be hard now to get yourself to a screen, uh, one which shows Twitter and all that, as I know you're probably out for a run training for an Ironman or minding a child or maybe driving to a vaccination or driving to a heist, whatever whatever way you listen to this podcast. But the next few minutes require, at some point, a glimpse of Rachel's pinned tweet. And on it is a photo of nine tessellations that she has made by folding. They're square bits of paper and the different, they're one color and the different colors are formed by the different thickness of folding. So if you put them up to a window, here's what they look like. There's no way around the visual thing. So you, at some point, go and look at at RK Quinlan on Twitter. Um, Maybe next year when I've upgraded everything, we can do it with telepathy. So the, when I'm describing something visually, it will appear in your mind. Uh, but until then, it's going to have to be sound. So each of these is a photograph of just a completed piece of uh, completed origami tessellation, just basically looped onto a window so that, yeah. so that the light is shining through from behind. Can that create tiles on the floor then by the light shining through the oh, yeah, window, yeah, if transferring if, if, that if, to the, the flat plane. No, it, it actually does. Yeah, if you if you have if you have good sunshine like we do today, you can have yeah yeah shadow cast onto the floor onto your tiled floor, which maybe has square tiles in our case. And you, yeah, yeah. You, exactly that. You see this, um, and you might even you know because it's probably at an angle, you'll even see it. It won't be a exactly regular tiling because it'll be yeah. you know the shadows will be stretched in different directions. Ironically, more powerful in winter and evening and morning because the sun is striking Indeed, the, dead on yeah exactly exactly the low sun is really is really nice for this and so yeah. Yeah, no that's exactly it so so and the other thing that's you know if, anyone, if anyone's interested in this they can they can look through my twitter feed and see photographs for you know you take a photograph of the same piece of the same origami tessellation sitting on the table and stuck up on the window and it looks completely different because what's highlighted and what sort of you know what, what sort of uh, it's, it's emphasized if it's Lit from behind or not is, is is quite different, and sometimes sometimes it can be quite a surprise to finish something and then stick it up on the window and see see how it looks. What what kind of scale of folding is required, say, for any one of these? Is it surprisingly large or surprisingly small? It is. I'd say so. In terms of the kind of amount of time I would spend on any one of these, I'd say it would be probably about five hours typically. Okay. And so that's uh, so. And each of these starts life as a as a 
sheet of paper that's either 50 centimeters or 70 centimeters square. Okay. Uh, so, so you're not, not, not huge. And by the time they're finished because of all the folding, obviously they're, they're, they're sort of, you know, started off as one layer and now they have multiple layers in many places. So the finished product is probably about a quarter of the size of the sheet that you start with. So maybe, you know, maybe, maybe 25 or 30 centimeters square. It, it depends a little bit on how dense or sparse the folding is. But and so the first step is to make the, make the grid. And, you know, if you zoom in on any of them, like the, the, the second one there on the left, maybe you, if you just zoom in on that, you'll see the, the, the underlying pattern of the original creases from the original grid. Yeah. So that is the first step to make this, to do all this, what they call the, the pre-creasing. And that takes the most time, even though it's not the most kind of creative part. Um, and to get that right is really important because any inaccuracies there will sort of propagate through your work if, you, uh, yeah. if you're not careful enough. So yeah, then so then once you've done that, usually I work from the center. I start with the center and sort of work outwards. And you, you know, so basically what you're doing, you're just creating these pleats. That's how you tile a floor as well, isn't it? Don't you tile a I floor think, from think, the from the center of is. the room and then make the cut the I, edges I, I, at I the think wall? That's what they recommend if you want the edges to work out reasonably well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so, but I mean, you, you could start in a corner with these, but it's, it tends to be easier to start with the, in the center because you're actually making shorter creases because you only have to go from the center to the edge. So, uh, so yeah, so, and basically there are, there are a few, a few kind of key moves. Uh, so the most basic one is to make a pleat. So, you know, if anyone's worked with fabric, you know, making the pleat is something you do there as well. And in fact, even if you've, if you've ever had to like iron is something that has pleats, in it, you know, you, you know, this, you just have to kind of remake them with your, with your hands and then, and then iron them. So it's very like that. And then when you have pleats that meet each other, that's where you kind of have to do something to, to kind of resolve the clumping that occurs at that point of intersection yeah. and there you can make it you, 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 like i was saying you can fold down a twist a triangle or a or a square and you can for example if it's a triangular or hexagonal grid like most of these you can fold these triangles that sort of meet each other and form into hexagons and you know space between them creates these bright yellow patches in that top left one yeah and, and you can probably and, and, and you can see there are sort of uh, this is a repeating pattern i mean this effect that you see in that top left one of these kind of dashed lines that go through it in three different directions it's kind of accidental. You know, you don't necessarily start yeah. out trying to create something like that. It's, a, it's, it's what it looks like at the end. And what, uh, so when you're planning it, do you draw out what you, what you want to appear? Or is there a surprise, like when you're cutting out paper dolls for a child and even though you've a, you've a rough idea what it's going to look like, there's still an element of, oh, that's magic. Like, do you, do you get the, oh, I didn't expect that, but that's lovely, kind of. No, feel. exactly. So I, so I don't. So usually, what I do is I have a few sort of templates that I uh, that I kind of use again and again. This origami paper, you can you can do this with any kind of paper, but if you find yeah. yourself getting into it, you'll probably want to use good quality origami paper. And one of the advantages yeah. of that is that it's very um, it's it's very resilient to, to being folded and unfolded, and you know it, it it can withstand sort of a bit of abuse in terms of you know multiple folding and and uh, pressure at different points. It has longer fibers, apparently, than ordinary paper, which is what makes it more resistant to tearing. Um, so what I usually do is I kind of start off on my, 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 my practice template, just kind of trying to invent maybe a hexagonal tile. So, you know, in that top left one, if you look at something, that, you know, you, there are these kind of three-pronged sort of triangles in it in the bright yellow color. Yeah. And, surrounded, and they're surrounded by three sorts of little kind of things like little bow ties that, that, that cross at the three points. And three little dashes then that come out from the three points as well. So maybe that's kind of the basic tile. And what that looks like when it's not that lit might be quite different because there you can't see the you know the, the, the different thicknesses and how the how the light will look shining through it. So if you so what I do is if I if I've invented one of these kind of basic tiles, I try to just create that at the center and then copy it all around. And sort of, you know, so if you if it's a hexagonal tile, the first one will be surrounded by seven more, and then you can kind of build it outwards. But another thing that turns out to be interesting to me, at least, is that you you, you, can, you, can, you can put the tiles kind of right up against each other, like you'd have yeah. on your bathroom floor, or you can put gaps between them. And so if anyone is looking at this uh, kind of tableau of nine tessellations here, if you look at the, the middle one, the, the yellow one that's in the center of the nine, and the blue one that's right below it, they're actually very closely related to each other. Because yeah. if you if you, if you, if you, uh, if you look in the, in the yellow one, like there are sort of hexagonal clusters there, and they have these three kind of little bright kind of little bow tie type things to go around a central hexagon. And, and, yeah. and, that, and that, that, that hexagon is repeated. And if you look at the blue one just below it, it has, it has the same pattern of three little kind of bow ties around a central hexagon that occurs in 
you know, repeatedly. But between them, there are kind of these bright gaps that aren't in the yellow one. Yeah. So those two tessellations, really, they have exactly the same kind of basic tile. It's just that in the blue one, they're separated from each other. And so you get this extra effect of these other sort of, you get these kind of things that look like bright blue circles surrounding each of those little hexagons in the blue one. And they're not there in the yellow one. So this is something that I sort of find fascinating from the, you know, yeah. I suppose from the, from the combination of mathematical and visual point of view, that there are these things that really are very, very similar to each other, but create quite different visual effects. So yeah, so those two have the same tile. And the one at the top left actually has a tile that's very similar as well to both of those, but uh, not quite the same as either of them. But, you know, again, the, the, the very same ideas. And they stem from the same flat piece of paper. So they're kind of, it gives it, does it give us a little glimpse into the infinite as well in that there are an infinite number of designs from one a4 r square piece of paper that is kind of what i think is most fascinating for me and so and of course you know there are you know there are lots of different origami technical elements that people can do and you know there are people who do the most extraordinary skillful manipulations of paper to create new origami shapes and i don't really do that i have there are sort of three or four basic elements in all of this the initial grid and then there's just a couple of different sort of combinations of pleats and twists that you put together. And all of these involve basically the same sort of three or four basic elements of design. I suppose maybe it's like knitting, which is something that I used to do a long time ago, but I haven't done it for years. Where, you know, there, there, there are only a few basic stitches, but people make the most extraordinarily complicated and elaborate and sophisticated patterns from them. So a bit like that, from a few basic steps, putting them together in only in slightly different ways, not even in dramatically different ways. Uh, I think there is an extraordinary amount of variety that can be generated from a, from, from a few elements. One phrase you used there that I found fascinating, you talked about the memory of the paper. And like, is, is origami and folding and the design, is it a way of encoding information in, like, are you like, you know, if it was a computer chip, you'd be soldering connections. Yeah. Are you encoding information onto a flat zero piece of paper? Except it's it's no. not it, it's got potential, but it has. Uh, now you're transferring, getting all esoteric here, but you're transferring stuff from your brain to your hands onto the paper, and then the paper remembers what you did. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I haven't thought about this before, to be honest, but I think you're, I think you're completely right. And I guess even though if, if you, different papers behave a bit differently, but if you have a paper that rem- that remembers whether it was folded sort of upwards or downwards, you know, some paper doesn't care, but some really only wants to be folded the way it was folded the first time, uh, then absolutely, you can certainly, you can certainly use that to encode, for example, you know, binary strings and zeros and ones or whatever for up, up folds and down folds. And I guess, yeah, I, I haven't thought about this in all honesty, but I think, I think you're right in these you know, by creating this kind of two-dimensional structure like this, you absolutely can encode quite complicated things. I think there may be people who have looked at this. I'm not sure whether there are people who have, you know, used it in sort of, you know, very applied ways. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you. I think you are right. There are. I guess you could, you, you, you could sort of really stretch this and consider it to be a form of kind of written language or something if you wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> is is the key thing like these these folds and 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 what they and what they store is that part of where maths and origami intersect so so when when our when we talk, so you're a mathematician and you, and obviously it's a hobby but it's it's also big maths is it like what's going on in these in the shapes and uh like tessellation it, it's an area of maths isn't it like it's it is it's a it big is, deal it is it is. It is. So there's a few different aspects of maths that actually feed into this. And there is somebody who has developed a formal mathematical theory of origami. And there's a, at least one person who's done that and is doing it currently is, 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 uh, is Robert Lang. And yeah. he's sort of, you know, he's proved theorems about when a particular pattern of pleats, for example, can be, can be made to lie down flat on a, on a, on a, on a two-dimensional piece of paper. And he's got, a, he's got formal uh, conditions for that that he's been able to prove. Robert Lang is... A virtuoso origami person. He's amazing. You should see some of the stuff he's made. He's an engineer who gave it all up, but for a very good reason. Origami was a passion throughout the years of being a physicist. But the idea that you would take a successful career, a Caltech education, two Caltech degrees, and 
chuck it in the bin for what? For paper folding, for manipulating, you know, little bits of paper that it, it seemed like, you know, most people in the world would hear doing that and just say, you are out of your mind. But I'm having the best fun I've had in my life. And now he makes ads and music videos and helps design stents and solar sails and airbags. I can't even believe we're able to make this diamond shape just out of a square. And there are there are also um, there's also quite a lot of theory about, for example, you know, if you have some kind of combination of pleats, whether whether it's sort of rigid or whether it can be flexed, there are, there are people who work on that from the point of view of origami as well. And then there's the whole mathematical theory of tilings and of repeated factors and repeated, repeated, repeating patterns. This is something that's important, not only in mathematics, but also, for example, in chemistry, where people study crystallogra- crystallographic structures, which are basically yeah. three-dimensional three uh, tessellations. And there is, there's quite, a, you know, we have, we have quite a lot of, of, of knowledge about how the physical... So, so the, just to go back to the, the chemistry and the crystallographic uh, structures, this would be like even in a film when they're when they show oh now it's the science bit and it's Iron yes. Man and it's like he's he's you know he's got like you know holograms of of structures. This would be like roundy ball atom uh, line connecting. So the bonds between the way the way atoms would be grouped together, stacked like oranges or whatever within. A structure that's what we talk about is it when or that's what we mean when precisely. we talk about crystallography precisely. and then how how, mi- how billions and trillions and gazillions of them would would squash together is is tessellation is tiling it is well if if, 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 it, if it's a crystalline structure which is very highly structured so i guess lots of chemical materials are kind of amorphous you know they're, they're quite haphazard but crystals in particular like obviously diamonds and things like that but also ice have um very very rigid r- repeating structure which can be detected using techniques like uh, diffraction. Sorry, just jumping in again. And sorry if this is something you know, like the back of your hand. But diffraction is about the bending of light, um, beams of light uh, as they as it hits obstacles. So crystallography, typically one of the ways to do it is they shine x-rays at a crystal. So the way atoms are formed in molecules they shine x-rays at it and then they measure the way the x-rays are diffracted or bounced around. And by measuring the angles and all the data about how thick the rays are when they come away from the bouncing and they, they're able to work out the shape of a crystal, how it's arranged. They use a thing called Fourier transforms to solve all the different rays coming out. And Fourier transforms are absolute maths filth. And I can't wait until episode 400 to tell you about those, because maybe I might understand them then. There are, there are also, um, there's also quite a lot of uh, theory about, for example, you know, if you have some kind of combination of pleats, whether whether it's sort of rigid or whether it can be flexed, there, there are people who work on that from the point of view of origami as well. And then there's the whole mathematical theory of tilings and of repeated factors and repeated, repeated, repeating patterns. This is something that's important, not only in mathematics, but also, for example, in chemistry, where people study crystallographic structures, which are basically yeah. three-dimensional three uh, tessellations. And there is, there's quite, a, you know, we have, we have quite a lot of, of, of knowledge about how the physical... So, so the, just to go back to the, the chemistry and the crystallographic uh, structures, this would be like, even in a film when they're, when they show, oh, now it's the science bit and it's Iron yes. Man. And it's like, he's, he's, you know, he's got like, you know, holograms of of structures. This would be like roundy ball atom uh, line connecting. So the bonds between the way the way atoms would be grouped together, stacked like oranges or whatever within a structure. That's what we talk about, is it? When or that's what we mean when Precisely. we talk about crystallography. Precisely. And then how how, mi- how billions and trillions and gazillions of them would would squash together is is tessellation, is tiling. It is. Well, if, 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 if it's a crystalline structure, which is very highly structured, so I guess lots of chemical materials are kind of amorphous. You know, they're, they're quite haphazard. But crystals in particular, like obviously diamonds and things like that, but also ice, have um, very, very rigid r- repeating structure, which can be detected using techniques like uh, diffraction and so on. But, you know, kind of figuring out the, the, the mathematics of where the basic atomic particles could be if you want to have a repeating structure. They can't just be anywhere. And so for exactly the same reason that 
If you want to tile the floor with regular polygons, you can do it with squares. You can do it with hexagons, regular hexagons. You can do it with equilateral triangles, but you can't do it with regular pentagons or with you know regular yeah. decagons or anything else like that if, if you want them all to be the same size and, and of the same type. So exactly the same sort of things occur in three-dimensional structures. And so mathematically, of course, there are lots of different types of notions of symmetry and different, uh, you know, within geometry, different types of symmetry. But one type of symmetry is this periodic symmetry where you have the same pattern repeating. You know, you can, you can take a step from one tile to the next and your surroundings look the same. And the, there are the, the periodic symmetries that can occur on, on a two-dimensional piece of paper or floor are, are, are fully understood. They're, they're classified. They're, they're classified by something called the wallpaper groups. Does a math? Does uh, a very serious, like Ivy League, uh, uh, beautiful U.S. campus, really hard maths section uh, called wallpaper groups? Is it's? Yes, I love that. There's a super Wikipedia page about the wallpaper groups. If anyone's interested in that, it's really really good, and they have fantastic examples. And I think yeah. this, is, I, I, this is something that I really like as well because the the kind of official classification of the wallpaper groups was only completed in the 20th century using you know quite modern ideas from topology and from geometry and from algebra but people have known about the wallpaper groups from antiquity and it's clear from archaeological finds that they've been understood you know throughout history and they've been understood independently in different regions of the world where they're visible now in from from from, from examples that have been found from the world of design throughout the yeah. ages you know start you know starting thousands of years ago right up until modern times people have been producing decorative artwork for practical purposes, like, you know, architecture yeah. and pottery and so on, and kitchen utensils and everything from ancient times. And they're, you know, they've been found. Uh, so I suppose at some level they were understood at a, you know, maybe not in the context of modern theorems about topology and geometry, but in yeah. a direct way, which is, I think, it, to, my, to my mind, is, you know, is, is, is no lesser of a form of understanding. Me again, topology, uh, if you ever see that word, it's the study about how, shapes behave when stretched and mangled and deformed in any kind of a way, but not torn. So famously, a coffee cup and a donut are the same, topologically speaking, because they both have a hole in the middle. Uh, but the hole in a cup is not the top of it, it's the handle. But a bun is different to a donut and a coffee cup because it has no holes unless you've eaten all the way through it in which case you've sort of made it a cronut maybe you have to flatten the whole page exactly instead of just this corner yeah you were right that it was wrong just like mathematicians they would have worked out this stuff like through iteration like yeah they would yeah, have ground yeah. it out by sheer blood, sweat and tears to work out how to repeat patterns such that your beautiful Babylonian palace was sure. decorated perfectly. Uh, and then thousands of years later, exactly. you're, you're working back from the theory to work out what they would have done through grinding it out. Precisely. And exactly that. And they, they sort of pushed the limits, they tested the variance, they kind of figured out how could we adapt this, how could we vary it, what are the, you know, what are the parameters, what are the... You know what can change? What has to stay the same? What are the things you can't do? And so, if it's a, if it's a tiled surface in in two dimensions, you know, the things you can't do, for example, are you can't you, if, rotational symmetries can only be through one hundred and eighty degrees or three sixty, obviously, or through ninety or through sixty degrees, you know, or through one hundred and twenty, basically because only hexagons or squares as regular polygons can tile the floor. And so, you know, you can have you can have other kind of patterns appearing in translational symmetries, which means sliding along as opposed to rotation about a point and yeah. also you could incorporate the decorative elements which don't change the underlying symmetry but can give you quite a different visual effect so and when you look at the if you look at the wiki page about the wallpaper groups i've, I've spent a long time looking at that they have there there are examples there that are collected from such sort of diverse places and, and, and uh, at points in history and, and and cultural traditions as well that have the same underlying symmetry but that's not obvious at a glance you know you really have to kind of look hard to see that they do there's a one-dimensional version of this too, and they're called the freeze groups. And uh, so basically that's essentially, if you have like just, just, just a row of tiles along a line. Um, okay, like the border at the top of, um, of a wall or, or a exactly. skirting board. 
Exactly, exactly, exactly. So they kind of have rotation. Can the entire strip have rotational symmetry as well as its as well as its periodic repeating symmetry? Can it have and, mirror symmetry of reflections? And the word there is freeze. F R I E. Oh, there is freeze. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. There's a beautiful yeah. wiki page too about the freeze groups, and um, the freeze they're, they're really easier. If you're, if you're interested in understanding these, there are only seven freeze groups, but there are seventeen wallpaper groups. And so, uh, <laughs> of course, and then, and I, 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 I so presume. I presume there's a significance that that's those are prime numbers and uh, secret of the universe. Actually, just trying to map between people tiling and decorating and then atoms and the universe, man. But is something which links this like efficiency using the least amount of stuff to give you the greatest strength or area. So, you know, you talk about what's, an easy way we tile floors with hexagons and squares nature also loves using the minimum amount of stuff to make a thing so whether it's proteins or the universe like all of these when you're as mathematicians like trying to work out refining and refining the equations that generate the repeating patterns do, do you kind of meet in the middle and say here's the most efficient way to do the thing you want to do using the least amount of stuff in the shortest space of time like is that is that what governs a lot of this, uh, or is that too broad a, a summation of patterns and tessellation? Yeah, so I think mathematics, quite often, I think you're right. And certainly, certainly when you're looking for you know, solutions to practical problems that exist, you're looking for efficiencies. Often also mathematicians are interested in classifying things, identifying you know, what are the things that can exist that can have these properties. And so, for example, you know, when you look at the in two-dimensional space, we all know that we have all the, the regular polygons, the square, the regular hexagon, the regular heptagon, the decagon, and so on. And you have, you know, you know, you have one of those with any number of sides and angles that you want. In three dimensions, it's different. If you want to create three-dimensional objects, for example, whose whose faces are regular polygons, you're, you're much more constrained in how you can do it. And, and you know, if, if if you want all of those polygons to have the same appearance and all the uh, seams between them and all the all the places where the meat and corners look the same. There are only five ways of doing it. And there are the cube that we all know about, uh, the, te- the tetrahedron, which is a regular triangular pyramid, uh, the octahedron, which is a, which has eight triangular faces, and there are four of them meeting at each vertex. And then there are two more, the dodecahedron, which is a, it has 12 pentagonal faces, and three of them meet at each vertex, and the icosahedron, which is, has 20 triangular faces, and these are the so-called platonic solids. And so, honest, so in some sense, they're sort of the most symmetric three-dimensional objects you could have you know, mathematicians know that shapes like this that have fa- flat faces and that, whose faces are regular polygons, that they have to satisfy certain consistent kind of compatibilities about how the edges meet and how many edges meet at a, at a corner and, and so on. And there are certain sort of numbers that have to add up together. And the only ways that it can be achieved are by, the, by those five examples, which are known as the platonic solids. And so I think mathematicians sort of like it when they're able to kind of classify things and say that, well, if you want this type of structure, it's actually quite rigid. You can only have these particular elements. So it's a bit like if you want to have rotational symmetries in your tiling, they can only be through through 60 or 120 or 90 or 180 degrees. And the reason for that is the so-called crystallographic restriction, which also applies to the science of, of crystallography. People like periodic tilings. And I like them, as, as, as you know, at this stage. But something that has also become an object of study kind of more recently, you know, in the last 40, 50 years, maybe, but very much a, 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 a prominent thing currently as well, is whether you can have tilings that are kind of almost periodic in the sense that they don't actually have a repeating tile that covers the entire space, but that, they look, but that they're highly structured and that they look almost like they do. So, for example, maybe you have a large area of it that does have repeating tiles, and maybe that's repeated like many, many places around the whole plane, but there isn't actually an overall repeating periodic behavior that, 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 that covers the whole plane. So basically it was discovered kind of in parallel, both in mathematics and in chemistry through diffraction patterns, that there were these objects that kind of had almost periodic structure, but it wasn't actually periodic. And that had and the reason that we knew it wasn't, they couldn't actually be periodic was that these diffraction patterns showed up that had pentagonal rotational symmetry. So rotational symmetry to, to 72 degrees, which would be like one fifth of a full turn and they, but they looked sort of very highly structured and you know so just to jump hazards. in there, uh, pentagonal rotational symmetry or 72 degree turn if you an object that if you turned if you turned it a bit of a circle 
so you know roughly a fifth of a circle around exactly. or actually a fifth of a circle it would look it would still look the same exactly exactly right like a yeah. pentagon would be this yeah exactly so this so these kind of uh, you know um crystallographers were discovering these these these, these uh, physical substances that had diffraction patterns that showed this pentagonal rotational symmetry, which meant they couldn't actually be crystals. They couldn't actually be genuinely periodic, but they had all the kind of appealing, highly symmetric sort of structures and, you know, these beautiful diffraction patterns with very kind of regularly spaced points of light. And meanwhile, mathematicians were discovering the same thing, which is known as aperiodic order now. So it's, 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 uh, they're, they're tilings or tessellations that have, you know, kind of nearly all the properties of periodic structures, but aren't quite Periodic. So the Penrose tilings uh, would be one of the most famous examples of this phenomenon. Okay. And it's Penrose tilings. Penrose tilings. Yeah. So I think it's. I mean, I think there are origami artists who have explored this and explored creating these things from origami, which is a step I haven't yet taken. But you never know. <laughs> so you've got people folding and creating efficiency and the ability for two D to become three D and vice versa, and finding out about how crystals fit together this must be useful in things that we take for granted in things that are made because obviously uh, so much of our products involve making effective big things fit in as small a place as possible Absolutely. so all of this stuff we we're, we we're using all of this kind of theory of folding and arranging and slotting in next to each other without knowing it i guess are we Absolutely. I don't know. I, 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 kind of one of the most basic places where it's used is another object that we, I think, well, I think many of us anyway take for granted, which is the, the cube, a completely miraculous object. <laughs> you know, it, has, it has all this symmetry. It looks the same from any angle. All of its corners look the same. All of its sides look the same. All of its faces look the same. But cubes can be stacked. So if you want to pack your stuff you know, in an efficient way, of course, you don't just sort of pile it up in the corner. You, you pack it into boxes that are rectangular boxes so they can be stacked on top of each other in a way that doesn't waste any space. And so, you know, kind of objects like cubes and, and, and paper, like I said before, I'm kind of serious about this. You know, these these things that are so familiar that we think they're so ordinary, they're actually really remarkable, remarkable objects. Uh, you know, the, the stacking properties of, of cubes are are extraordinary, even amongst the beautiful symmetric platonic solids. You know, the cube is the only one that actually really stacks well. And yeah, these, these are sort of, I suppose, kind of deep principles of nature that we use all the time without giving it a whole lot of thought. And even uh, like so, cubes obviously fit in rectangular houses, but we we also fold things down to fit in odd shapes. Like, is is it an airbag? Is that that uses that can kind of look at some of the principles of folding as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's again, it's, it's not something that I know anything about the engineering of airbags, but it's yeah, absolutely. I guess the question of how an airbag is folded, both for compactness and for safety, is, is a really big question. It relates somehow to origami. I guess you want you want it to be folded in a way that kind of maximizes the. the the opportunity to protect the person should there be an accident, but also it needs to fit into this very small place. Parachutes, I guess, the same. Yeah, Robert Lang designed airbags. Check out his TED Talk about how he did that. He also did solar sails and stents, which sounds like a line from uh, the song A Few of My Favourite Things. Here's a tiny clip uh, where he's talking about the origami of very big and very small things. Pan Aerospace Agency flew a solar sail, and you can see here that the sail expands out, and you can still see the fold lines. The problem that's being solved here is something that needs to be big and sheet-like at its destination, but needs to be small for the journey. And that works whether you're going into space or whether you're just going into a body. And this example is the latter. This is a heart stent developed by Zhang Yu at Oxford University it holds open a blocked artery when it gets to its destination, but it needs to be much smaller for the trip there through the, your blood vessels. And this stent folds down using an origami pattern based on a model called the water bomb base. And then going bigger, do mathematicians and physicists, do they look at folding on the big scale? Like, is our universe foldy? <laughs> How does that work? Like, is, oh, no, does I the mean, same thing apply? That is a big subject and not, not one that I am... Um... That I know that I know an awful lot about, but absolutely. I mean, what, what is the shape of the universe, and how does our three-dimensional immediate neighborhood fit into possibly higher-dimensional space in, in, in the physical universe? Is a, is a, these are huge questions. I suppose you know, even this, this is this is a kind of an obvious thing, maybe. But you know, if you if you take a piece of paper 
and look at two points on it that are far apart from each other. Yeah. You know, and then if you fold if you fold over the piece of paper, you can make those two points near to each other. If you could, you know, so if you can travel between them, just sort of through the the ambient space without having to travel along the paper, they can be very near to each other, even though they're far apart. If you have to travel along the surface of the paper, so the same question, as far as I understand it, which is my understanding of this is 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 not at an advanced level, but the same question actually arises in in the geometry of the universe. Are there points that are very far apart from each other, traveling through our immediate sort of ambient environment that we can perceive, that could actually be close to each other in some folded structure that's invisible to us? An analogy of it can be can be asked on folded paper. You know, take two points near sheets of paper, you can make them near to each other by folding over the paper. And then it's, if you have it, a way of traveling through the air, you can travel between them. It's interesting even listening to you describe it and hearing the paper. And it's a lovely, first of all, it's a lovely sound. I did my first ever bit of uh, origami last night. I didn't make like a swan or uh, a crane or anything like that. But I was following that, you know, you can make, you can use origami apparently to make like modular units yes. for bigger things. So I made, I think it's called a... A Sonobi. Is Sonobi unit, yes. is that right? And yeah, but the so. thing that struck me, the thing that struck me, I was a bit self-conscious about starting the folding, was this tactile relationship between, you know, me and the paper and the sense that I was making something that greater minds than me understood the significance of the folds, the vertices, and how they all fitted in. But yet it felt immersive as an exercise in doing maths does that does that is that recognizable feeling to you oh absolutely i completely identify with that and that's something that i I guess actually you've 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 expressed it really well there that's exactly it and so i mean i I guess yeah exactly that and that there it's kind of a mathematical experience that isn't just just in your mind it's not just an intellectual one it's kind of a physical one as well and tactile like you say so and also of course it has an element of of creativity so so yeah so I, i mean you know could could children like if you like we all want it we all want to rare maths prodigies who are also good at everything else but but like children folding stuff and I know there's a bit goes on in in some it's not widespread but the idea of folding and making things does that create a an appreciation of maths that maybe you still won't know how to differentiate delta y over delta x but that your your sense of perception of the world, like, is it good for the maths part of your brain that doesn't pass exams, but is just good for life? Like, where, where do you really put it in so. the learning in the learning That's experience? So, so, you know, to, and to be honest, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I've, I'm not arguing necessarily for this to be in the curriculum or anything like that because I haven't thought about it. But I totally agree with what you're saying, and I think you know, yes, okay, sure, we'd like to wear maths apologies, but we'd also like to wear, we'd, we'd like people to be able to enjoy maths. And people can, you know, I suppose the thing that I would say is like art and like music, people can enjoy maths in different ways. And we don't all have to have the same mathematical taste anymore than we all have to have the same musical taste, you know. And there are, there, I think there are things that we can enjoy. And, you know, I, I suppose what I would like would be for people to realize that what they're enjoying is actually mathematical if they do enjoy things like this. One, two, three. You know, I guess, I guess the same occurs in other subjects where people can enjoy history or art or language or whatever it is that there are probably experiences you can have that you might not recognize as being belonging to this kind of area of human activity if it doesn't match what you've experienced in the curriculum you know so yeah so you're like your average 13 or 14 year old wading through the eight theorems we all have to learn in trigonometry that even a spot of folding of paper measuring the angles that it kind of would come alive for them a bit more, do you think? No, absolutely, absolutely. I, well, I would hope it might for some people. I mean, of course, it boils down to what everyone enjoys, and we all enjoy different yeah. things, which is good, because life would be boring if we all had exactly the same interests. But for people who do enjoy it, yeah, I think absolutely it does. It, it can give you a sort of uh, an understanding that isn't necessarily articulated in words even, you know, or yeah. uh, maybe not in theorems. And I, I think and the same f- about looking at people who make things, you know, who make things out of wood, or who make things out of, you know, who make furniture, for example. Like, there's so much geometry there. And obviously so much, you know, deep understanding, which maybe, you know, when you look at the finished product, you can absolutely see that. And, you know, to what extent it's articulated, I I honestly don't know. But there's there's so much geometry that goes into making things that really is, I suppose, a kind of complementary 
to yeah. the kind of formal mathematical approach, maybe. But, but that all of this is part of the knowledge that we have and that we use. And so what? I suppose the same about mathematical art. You know, you're, you're kind of expressing it in a way that isn't necessarily how the textbooks would describe the theorem, but you're experiencing it in another way that's, 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 that's valid and rewarding. Yeah, and I feel like I'm uh, almost uh, contradicting that experience by by this next question, which is like, so where do you where do you go with this uh, origami stuff, Rachel? <laughs> you know, like as if this, as if it should have an endpoint, and you know, make you more qualified to do A, B, and C. Like that, why should it have a point? But does do you does it feel like a progression to you? I know it's a hobby. But from a, as a mathematician, does it bring you somewhere else in your in your maths life, or does it matter whether it does or not? So, so whether it will bring me somewhere else in my life as a sort of uh, in my in my mathematical research as such, like as a sort of scientist working in this field, I honestly don't know. Uh, certainly, it brings me somewhere else in terms of my own sort of personal understanding, that sort of relation with the with the subject. And I suppose it is something that I kind of would like to share. And this is, so I'm grateful to you for the opportunity to share it today like this, that, you know, I think it's something that is uh, interesting and, you know, the, the sort of opportunity there to create something that is visually appealing, at least to some people, uh, with nothing more than a sheet of paper. And there's, there's no measuring even involved. You know, everything is just, all you, all you need is, you, you need the sheet of paper that you start with to be a rectangle, that's all. Apart from that, there's absolutely, you know, there's no angle measuring or anything like that involved in it. It's, it's all done from a few basic geometric principles and just 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 folds. So that's something that I find interesting. So as long as I enjoy it, I'll keep doing it. So I mean at the moment I'm interested in just continuing to create this, these uh, designs like the one in my pinned tweet there and maybe hopefully sharing it with a few people if some people are interested in sort of getting involved <laughs> who might also enjoy this as a, as a platform or an art form. And what is your next origami project? Have you got a picture in mind that you'd like to create? Um, I do. So there do will, you do so, you know what it'll look like? How sure are you it will look like that, or will something magic happen along the way? No, that's the thing. So, so to be honest, I, I, I never start with the picture of what it is that I want it to look like at the end because I still I find it still quite difficult to guess how it's going to look when, when it's that bit. So, so yes, the answer to that, I, I, I invented a new hexagon there over the weekend. <laughs> You, in, you invented a new. You invented a new hexagon. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that, that's a joke. But I mean, I invented with, with, my, with, my, with my creases and my, my triangle twists. I invented a, a different kind of configuration of pieces oh, of creases that make a that make a basic hexagonal unit. So, uh, so yeah. I'm going to try that next weekend. And so it'll be on Twitter. I hope next weekend. Oh, <laughs> yeah, great! We'll keep, <laughs> we'll keep an eye out for that. And just technicals. What is your paper? What's your favorite piece of paper to work with? What what uh, ah, grams yes. per square grams per square meter uh, do you recommend for uh, budding origamists? So I think that it is eighty grams per square meter. So it's a kind of it's a, it would be comparable to kind of typical office paper in terms of its uh, yeah. thickness. Some people use really really thin stuff if they want to do very intricate foldings. But so yeah. So if anyone's interested in kind of picking this up. Uh, this book that I started with, Origami Tessellations by Eric Gerda, is a, you can get it on Amazon or anywhere. It's a, or, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great one to get started. Also, there's a great website called happyfolding.com where you'll find lots Happy of folding, tutorials. Yeah. And you can definitely get started with just ordinary A4 office paper or even just a like, paper torn out of a notebook or, you know, that type of paper is fine to get started. If you, start, if you, if you want to make things that are a bit more extensive or a bit more complicated, You'll eventually get frustrated if your paper starts to tear a lot on you. Uh, okay. Easily. So then you might then you might decide you want to use some kind of better and quality tearing, origami paper. Tearing breaks the spell of origami. Origami is about it folding, really, and there's no sellotape yeah. or staples. Uh, no, once I mean, you tear, you've you've you, you've destroyed the universe. You've broken the no, plane. Fabric. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can get away with small tear at the edge if you're if you're unlucky you know that, that can yeah. easily happen and you can get you can get away with that and you can repair it with a tiny piece of sellotape but the trouble yeah. is that once it starts you have you then have the risk that it will rip further you know? so i know yeah um, so but uh but if you're so i i order my paper from a specialist origami shop in france origami shop okay. right. they're, they're excellent they ship really quickly and the, yeah. my, my favorite papers for folding are two uh, one, one is called satogami it's 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 Japanese. And the other yeah. one that I like is, is Tant, which I'm not sure where that actually comes from. T-A-N-T is the name of the, okay. the, the maker. And the, the really brightly colored ones there, like the top left yellow one and the lower right blue one definitely are both Tant paper. They do these beautiful, vivid colors. 
and uh, the other they're, they're, all of those are are one or other of those of those two types and you know it's it's so for a, for a 50 square centimeter sheet it's about three euros you know and okay you get six hours you get six hours of full pleasure out of that so it's it's not really an expensive hobby <laughs> That that will be um that will be a pull quote from this uh, podcast definitely six six hours of folding pleasure may we all have that in whatever we attempt, attempt in life that's indeed, what I say indeed, yeah. indeed. okay that's it for this time sorry there was such a gap from the last one I'll try and get back on track uh, again try and get them out once a month or more often but still with the absence of this Matt's podcast it probably made the field a little less crowded uh, so no doubt Joe Rogan got a bump in numbers with me out of the way thanks so much to Dr. Rachel Quinlan you can see her as I say on Twitter at at RK Quinlan Uh, she said she was going to make a new hexagon at the weekend and if you look at her tweet from I think May the 3rd you can see that new hexagon Uh, so she's true to her word so Thanks for listening. Please share, like and subscribe and all of that. The Function Room on Twitter is at Function Room Pod. And I'm at Cullum O'Regan on Twitter, making stupid jokes. And hopefully as this podcast goes on, we'll put more visual stuff into it. We'll get a Facebook page or Instagram or whatever you people are up to. But please let me know either on Twitter or at our hello at CullumOregan.com. Any suggestions, what you think of the podcast, I'd love to hear your views. But for now, get yourselves a square sheet of paper and get folding. Bye-bye. Flat, flat, flat. Lovely. So we've got kind of got a pyramid shape.